You're listening to a podcast from Settler Social Identities. This conference took place at the Humanities Institute, University College Dublin, on the 24th and 25th of July, 2018. The conference was generously supported by the Humanities Institute and UCD College of Arts and Humanities. This podcast features a keynote by Associate Professor Clara Toot from University of Melbourne. Her paper, Lag Fever, Flash Culture, The Moon's Late Minions, Gentlemen of the Shade in Colonial Australia, was introduced by Dr. Sarah Common from University College Dublin. It is my great honour to introduce Associate Professor Clara Toot from the University of Melbourne. Clara specialises in Romantic literature with a focus on the historical, cultural and social contexts of Romanticism. Her research engages canonical British Romanticism from the perspective of the history and theory of the literary institution, the history of sexuality and sociability. Clara has a particular interest and expertise in the work of Jane Austen and Lord Byron, which is demonstrated in her widely celebrated publications. Her first monograph, Romantic Austen, Sexual Politics and the Literary Canon, published by Cambridge University Press in 2002, was shortlisted for the MLA Prize for a first book. And her most recent monograph, Lord Byron and Scandalous Celebrity, also published by Cambridge University Press in 2015, was awarded the Alma Dangerfield Prize by the International Association of Byron Studies. For Cambridge University Press, she is currently editing Byron in Context, which is forthcoming next year. In 2002, with Professor Gillian Russell, she edited Romantic Sociability, Social Networks and Literary Culture in Britain, 1770 to 1840, a book that has not only been a huge inspiration for my own work on sociability, but a touchstone for this conference as a whole. In this book, Toot and Russell posed the challenge to consider, quote, sociability as a text in its own right, as a form of cultural work, a challenge to which this conference has aimed to respond. Clara has held a number of research fellowships, including at the Rockefeller Center, the Center for Urban Cultural History at the University of Massachusetts, Chawton House Library in the um, UK, and the Humanities Research Center at the Australian National University. And in 2017, she was elected as a fellow to the Australian Academy of Humanities. At the University of Melbourne, she is a member of the Research Unit in Enlightenment, Romanticism, and Contemporary Culture. Current research projects include a study of trans-European literary romanticism and the media of romantic Love, and with Gillian Russell, a project on Regency Romanticism in Ireland, Britain and Australia, entitled Flash Regency, supported by the Australian Research Council, and which we'll be hearing more about today in a paper which is titled, and it's a wonderful title I have to say, Lag Fever, Flash Culture, The Moon's Late Minions and Gentlemen of the Shade in Colonial Australia. Please make her very welcome. Thanks so much, Sarah, for that lovely, really generous introduction and, and the invitation to speak. It's a real honour to, 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 to be here. And, and thank you, everyone on the organising committee, um, the two Sarahs and, and, and Lara and Katie, for organising such a, a wonderful event. It's been really, really fabulous. Um, and thank you also to the um, Humanities Institute for um, supporting the, the trip. Um, so as, as Sarah mentioned, um, that the talk today comes from a new project with Gillian Russell on Regency Romanticism in, in Britain, Ireland and Australia, um, and it's becoming more and more focused on Australian colonial history. So this is quite a new area for me, um, working mainly in canonical British Romanticism studies, so um, that makes the invitation even more of an honour when I'm such a newcomer to, to the field. And I guess, too, I mean, one thing to say um, with, the, with the paper, um, well, the, this is the kind of early stages of a much larger project which explores the circuits and careers of scandalous celebrity, unrespectability, exile, expatriation, convictism and settler culture across Britain, Ireland, Europe and Australia. Um, and I'm really um, kind of moving from canonical Romanticism studies into colonial materials. So I, I should probably comment at the outset that then it's quite possible that I might have my own kind of lag going as, I, as it takes a little, little while to kind of move from that, that zone into the, into the colony. 
Um, so what I'm what I'm doing really is to consider these circuits and and careers of celebrity unrespectability, exile, and expatriation. Um, in relation to the transportation and transformation of a particular social identity, the dandy, or what we might call the dandy silhouette, something as precise as what Christopher Brewer refers to as the Londonate Mayfair look of Beau Brummel in the 1780s and how it travels um, across Europe um, and in Australia, in Botany Bay and Van Diemen's Land. Um, one key form of print visual culture through which the dandy identity is produced, disseminated and transformed is the so-called flash language, um, which was a cant or slang language um, made over in the Regency into a kind of fashionable language and sociable style. So I engage the flash as a key cultural formation that mediates these Regency transnational circuits of masculine image, text and social identity um, and which connects convict culture to, to fashionability. Um, but first, some um, visual epigraphs to, to set the scene. And it's a scene of canonical literary expatriation and scandalous celebrity. Lord Byron in Genoa in April, May of 1823 with the so-called Blessington Circus, a tight little proto-Jamesian entourage of scandalous idler adventurers that cast its web of social magic and intrigue across Ireland, England and Europe. It comprised the Irish author and hostess Marguerite, Countess of Blessington, her second husband Charles John Gardner, the Earl of Blessington, Lady Harriet Gardner, the daughter of Earl Blessington by his former wife, and the young Frenchman Alfred Count d'Orsay, Marguerite's companion, supposed lover, surrogate son, supposed lover too of the Earl, and from 1827 to 1838, the husband of the Earl's daughter. A very tangled web they wove. D'Orsay was a spectacularly beautiful Regency Adonis who came to be known as the King of Dandies and the numerous sightings of D'Orsay that immortalised him in print cultural, print visual culture often featured him on horseback um, as he's featured here. Um, he was a the second son of a general in Napoleon's Grande Armée, and he had a position in the army of the restored Bourbon monarchy. But in 1823, he resigned his commission to join the circus and travel with the Blessingtons in European expatriation. So this um, lithograph of Dorsay here um, commemorates this military career. He's often featured on, on horseback, um, and it's an image that was published in Fraser's magazine. Dorsey himself produced two images of Byron that commemorated the sociability between Byron and the Blessington Circus during the Blessington stay in the town of Alborough near Genoa, where Byron lived at the time. Um, and an ink and gilt silhouette of Byron commemorates this contact between Byron and the Blessingtons, um, as does this sketch by Dorsey, both of these by Dorsey, that was produced in 1823 and reworked in 1832 to illustrate Blessington's conversations of Lord Byron that were based on the conversations they had when they travelled on horseback and would accompany Byron on his daily rides. So Dorsey's portrait of Byron functions as a silhouette in the symbolic sense of a prototype of the Regency dandy. Dorsey's own silhouette in Maclise's image in Fraser's magazine marks a later generation of dandyism. 
and has its own glamorous afterlife as the prototype for modern American dandyism when it's reworked as Eustace Tilly, the dandy mascot of the New Yorker magazine, appearing on its first issue in 1925. Um, this particular image of Dorsey um, and, and how it travels really in colonial Australia becomes a little bit um, becomes important a, a bit later on, so I'll return to that then. What I want to do now is to work up to this colonial scene and the story of the colonial archive that this image tells by moving out from this scene of genteel, scandalous, exilic expatriation because this scene of the Blessington Circus is also the backdrop for an occasion of canonical literary production as Byron is in Genoa, going out on horseback for morning rides, having the conversations with Blessington and Orsay, he's working on Canto 11 of Don Juan, the so-called Flash Canto, and from Genoa revisits London in the company of Juan, who meets the Flash highwayman Tom, who he shoots dead while he is in full Flash. When Juan gets to London, and so it's that moment of the text that, that picks up after the moment that Honor was talking about yesterday when Dewan um, comes to London um, at the behest of, of Catherine the Great in, in Canto 10. So Dewan gets to London, comes through Shooter's Hill on the outskirts with its gallows at the foot and its gibbet at the summit, framing the scene and the vision of London as the capital of England and as a world power through the sights and implements of punishment. And it's part of a quite sustained um, critique of England as an imperial power which encompasses punishment, the punishment of, of transportation that Byron elaborates throughout Don Juan. After his arrival, Juan is waylaid by Tom the Highwayman, or rather footpad robber, who holds him up with a knife. Juan pulls out his gun and shoots Tom dead and then regrets it. Byron's narrator makes a tribute to Flash Tom, speaking as Juan in a form of free and direct discourse um, in this text which moves from, you know, moves from, from lyric to, to, to prose. The Shooter's Hill scene uses a Flash vocabulary and reworks a Shakespearean intertext after Falstaff's appeal to Hal in Henry IV to have thieves reclassified as minions of the moon when he becomes king. And this is Falstaff to Hal um, in Henry, the, Henry IV. Marry then, sweet wag, when thou art king, let us not that as squires of the knight's body be called thieves of the day's beauty, let us be Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the, of the shade, minions of the moon, and let men say we be men of good government, being governed as the seers by our noble and chaste mistress, the moon, under whose countenance we steal. So this is a quite rich and I think really poignant moment of, of intertextuality. Not only does it rework the Shakespearean scene into a contemporary picaresque, but it channels Shakespeare stylistically um, in a mode of free and direct discourse um, where the narrator speaks through an as-Juan crafting a highly Shakespearean Latinate tautology where, as Tom dies, Juan sees the moon's late minion bleed as if his veins would pour out his existence. The passage honours a fallen flash man recirculating an earlier form of thief's language that Shakespeare honours. Um, both Byron and, and Shakespeare are exalting the thieves and lyricising their work and identity um, and aspirations to nobility. These gentlemen of the shade are shadowy characters, secret, subversive, but lyrically associated with the night and the queen of the moon, Diana. And I think this, um, this impulse to socially elevate the thieves speaks directly, I think, to the larger cultural drama 
um, of the transformation of convict into settler that really kind of marks Australian history. So it's that that sort of larger cultural and historical narrative that I think is is um, engaged here. The association with disguise and indirection, with social elevation through disguise, is a vital part of flash culture, this subculture of thieves and gypsies that is then adopted and mimicked by elite subjects during the Regency, like Byron, um, as he does in Canto 10, um, improvising on the flash language that is a rich strain of demotic poetry, linguistic wit and inventiveness. Um, and, and so this is what the, the flash language kind of looks like um, in terms of, of Byron's improvisation. Um, poor Tom was once a, once a kitty upon town, thorough varmint and a real swell, full flash or fancy until fairly diddled, his pockets first and then his body riddled. Um, and I, I won't kind of unpack it. I mean, we can we can talk about it in in, in the discussion, but it's a, a really kind of um, elusive, coded kind of language that needs to be translated. Um, and there are a number of, of flash lexicons that did that work of, of translation. Really, kind of, I mean, are some random kinds of um, examples of, of flash ingenuity and and, and, and inventiveness. Um, would be things like barnacles for spectacles, Irish apricots for potatoes, babes in the wood for rogues in the stock or pillory, and cat sticks for thin legs. So it's a really kind of inventive um, language. Another thing that marks the flash language is that the coinages are not just words but um, a new range of, of social identities. As James Hardy Vaux defines it, a flash person is a person who affects any peculiar habit, a swearing, dressing in a particular manner, taking snuff, merely to be taken notice of. To do that is to do it out of flash. A needy misler is a poor, ragged object of either sex, a shabby-looking person, a sharp is a gambler, or a person professed in all the arts of play, a cheat or swindler. A rag, Georgie, is a rich or moneyed man, but generally, and this is Vaux, generally used in conversation when a particular gentleman or person in high office is hinted at. Instead of mentioning his name, they say the rag, Georgie, knowing themselves to be understood by those they are addressing. So the Georgie there is, is of course, a reference also to, to King George and that kind of lineage of Georges. Um, Another kind of flashman is the fancy man, a, a kind of pimp, um, scamp for thief, um, and the bow nasty or slovenly fop. Um, and then the swell, um, which is both a gentleman and a man of fashion, an equivalence that marks the aspirational nature of flash as well as its demotic bravura. The practice of thieves assuming identities um, is marked through the flash word chant also, which is a person's name, address or designation. Thus, a thief who assumes a feigned name on his apprehension to avoid being known, and this is Bo, or a swindler who gives a false address to a tradesman is said to tip them a queer chant. So this high Regency moment of the early 1820s, um, which is the high moment of flash subcultural style and language, is marked by an abundance of new styles of masculine self-fashioning. All of these social types and identities were not only commemorated but invented in the new popular antiquarian genre of the urban lexicon. Um, things such as Captain Francis Groves's classical dictionary of the vulgar tongue, published in 1785, 1811, and an 1823 version edited by Pierce Egan, and James Hardy Vaux's A New Vocabulary of the Flash Language of 1819, 
which was attached to Vaux's convict memoirs. Grose and Vaux were important primary sources for Byron's flash canto in Don Juan, and James Hardy Vaux was a professional thief, lag, recidivist who was transported three times to New South Wales. Originally a clerk, after working for an attorney in Bury St Edmunds and for a Covent Garden clothing firm, Vaux was arrested in April 1800 for pilfering from the clothers. He was quitted um, but then sentenced not long after at the Old Bailey to transportation for seven years for stealing a handkerchief. The memoirs that accompany the Flash Dictionary detail Vaux's social status and pre-criminal career as a copy and clerk in Lincoln's Inn New Square, a, new, a member of the new semi-professional class that was the primary audience of Pierce Egan's Life in London, another key source of the Flash. Vaux's narrative celebrates reading um, and invests a lot in the production of his identity as a, as, as a reader. I determined on becoming master of my own conduct and regulated my, life, my mode of life comfortably to the state of my finances. I breakfasted at home, dined at a tavern or genteel eating house, and in the evening took my tea and read the papers at a coffee house, after which I sometimes passed the night in reading at home, but most commonly went to one of the theatres at half price, where I gratified my violent passion for the drama, which at once improved my understanding and amused my mind. And in the, in the Flash Dictionary, the theatre is referred to as a spell ken, wonderful kind of term there. Um, that, and, and there's a whole register of, of terms that engage uh, the theatre as a site both of pleasure but also of work, um, of the, you know, the unthimbling and, and, and thieving. So Bo's account goes on, this, this account of, of rational reading. This course of life, though it rapidly weakened my purse, was rational compared to that which I soon after led, after I quitted the office of Messrs M and P, and during the course of a wild and dissipated life, they, uh, the reading of literature and the study of the law, formed one of my favourite domestic amusements, as did in fact reading in general. And throughout the most profligate stages of my future career, which I shall hereafter narrate, a portion of my time was always devoted to the perusal of books, and a part of my money, however hardly or dishonestly obtained to the purchase of them. And to this moment, I still consider them the most valuable property a man of my disposition can possess. So a really moving account, I think, um, of, of, of reading um, in, in quite a nostalgic account of his pr early pre-criminal days of rational re recreation. Um, as though his, his rational kind of reading self is, is his good self. Um, and like the memoirs of William Hone, um, another kind of non-elite um, subject, uh, Vaux's memoir is an epiphany to the transformative power of literacy and reading as a form of self-improvement and social mobility and as a sheer form of pleasure. And... Indeed, it was the, the literacy and the literiness of the memoir that was recognised when it was first published um, with the London magazine in 1827, um, a little bit after, um, describing the memoirs as one of the most singular uh, memoirs that ever issued from the press. And so it's this fascination with language that produced Vaux's vocabulary of the flesh, um, which also has the dubious distinction of being the first dictionary um, produced in Australia as well, or at least that it's had that traditional um, reputation. I don't know whether there's any other work um, that's been happening on this front, but if you know, if anyone knows, I'd be I'd be really interested to, to hear about it. Um, 
So the vocabulary accompanying the memoirs was dedicated to Vaux's former jailer um, in Newcastle, Thomas Scottow, a squire of His Majesty's 30, 73rd Regiment, Commandment of Newcastle, proffered with the suggestion that he might find it useful. So I trust the vocabulary will afford you some amusement from its novelty and that from the correctness of its definitions, you may occasionally find it useful in your magisterial capacity. Um, so that's the, the dedication to Scotter. And I can't resist adding also that Captain Scotter's other claim to fame was to have named um, a bowerbird after the Prince Regent, the Regent Bowerbird, um, that exalted character. And I think it's really interesting the ways in which so much um, supposedly natural history in Australia is, is inscribed with imperial history and in such kind of outlandish, um, pantomimic ways, although I also think there's a kind of um, edge to that too in that the, the Prince Regent's um, kind of habits of collecting and hoarding um, and, and feathering his nest at the, the Brighton Pavilion and elsewhere is also being um, engaged there. So the Regent Bowerbird is a particular kind of settler social identity then, I think, um, that the bird as the kind of gaudy um, gargantuan hoarder that was the Prince Regent. But that's probably, that's, that's being unkind to the bird, I think, to put, to put it that way. Um, but to... Tavaux himself um, looked very respectable. He wasn't a gentleman thief. Um, that was a particular kind of, 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 of category. Um, but he looked like one. And the memoirs are fascinating for the discussion of dressing like a gentleman in order to win the confidence of people um, who he would then unthimble. And that sense of of kind of social mobility and dressing up as, an, as, an, as a mode of social mobility is a really central part of flash culture um, and one that is celebrated most particularly in Pierce Egan's Life in London, first serialised in 1820 and then published in book form in 1821. Um, and Egan elaborates a certain kind of parodic genealogy of the dandy. Um, I feel induced now to describe for the benefit of posterity the pedigree of the dandy in 1820. The dandy was got by vanity, out of affectation. His dam, petite mate or macaroni. His grand dam, fribble. His great grand dam, bronze. His great great granddaughter, <laughs> coxcomb. And his earliest ancestor, fop. Um, so the also, the other thing to kind of note there in the frontispiece is the ways in which the text is about the kind of mobility um, from the, 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 the base of this Corinthian column um, right up to the heights there. So the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, this sort of um, phantasmagoria of, of social mobility in, in, in London, the high and, and low classes. Um, but in terms of the, the, the dandy genealogy, that the historicism is significant here um, for another really important feature of the flash language and also for its power as a kind of demotic um, subculture was its claim to ancient customary usage. As Marilyn Butler notes in an essay on popular antiquarianism, Quote, Grose's whimsical preface to the first edition of the Vulgar Tongue makes play with the idea of classicality. Quaint allusions and nicknames, he says, from long interrupted usages are made classical by prescription. He has drawn from his material, he has drawn for his material, quote, from the most classical authorities, such as soldiers on the long march, seamen at the capstan, ladies disposing of their fish and the colloquies of a Gravesend boat. This play with classicality is a primary feature of that version of the flash language known as Greek or St Giles's Greek 
so-called because of the prevalence of criminals around St Giles. Um, and as the surgeon, um, another early kind of colonial memoir um, by Peter Cunningham, two years in New South Wales, as he writes, a number of the slang phrases current in St Giles' Greek bid fair to become legitimised in the dictionary of this colony. So all lexicons are inherently historical and, and etymological, but some more than others. Um, one in particular is um, John Camden Hotton's 1859, this is the second edition of 1860, um, his dictionary of modern slang, cant and vulgar words. Flash language can be read then, I think, as a, what I want to suggest is that it can be read as a form of um, regency retroactivity, um, a retrofitting that makes flash a particularly productive category, I think, for examining cultural lag, a cultural, sorry, a spatial and geographical form of backwardness, um, exploring that in a colonial context, especially as lag has its own very distinctive form of coloniality commemorated by the flash language, lag, fever, which Francis Grose's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue defines as a term of ridicule applied to men who, being under sentence of transportation, pretend illness to avoid being sent from the jail to the hulks. And Grose was familiar with the Australian colonies through his son Francis, who was Lieutenant Governor of New South Wales from 1792 to 19 to, to 94. So that um, Australian um, infusion then was, was quite important for his vulgar tongue. The hulks um, instituted in 1776 were the first stage of transportation and then from the hulks on the long journey to Australia was the second stage. Labour in the colony was the third stage of transportation. As Julie Coleman points out, um, transportation was introduced in 1778 in the wake of an inquiry into the horrendous conditions of the hulks. And quite interestingly, um, the hulks were so bad that, that Vaux's father arranged for Vaux um, to avoid the hulks and to go straight to the transportation ship. Um, Vaux's father was a butler and a house steward to an MP, and so he seems to have drawn on those contacts in order to, to avoid that first stage of, of transportation. So the flash term lag fever figures in one sense the belatedness of the colonial world, as France Fanon was the first to memorably call it. It confirms the sense of transportation as a backward movement of space and time, simultaneously bestowing the social identity of the lag and its backward criminal state. Um, but of course it's also more complicated than that. Um, and in that sense, I want to highlight the more transformative elements of lag or disjunction, lag fever, like the flash, um, as a kind of charged culture or mode of anachronism um, and as a kind of culture of popular um, romantic retrospective avant-gardism. The pattern of return and relapse that marks those convict career is significant here. Um, Vaux's memoirs and flash vocabulary was produced, as I mentioned, in the Newcastle Penal Settlement, a place of secondary punishment known by contemporaries as the hell of New South Wales because the most dangerous convicts and repeat offenders were sent there to dig in the coal mines. Military rule in Newcastle ended in 1823, shortly after Vaux's time there, when the area was opened up to farming and the penal settlement became a site of settler pastoralism. Moving in and out of transportation, um, those repeat offending increases the cultural flow between metro metropolis and, and colony. When Vaux publishes the memoirs in 1819, 
is quite well connected to influential figures such as um, Samuel Marston and Baron Field, the author of the first book of poetry in Australia, First Fruits, who arranged for those manuscripts publication in London by John Murray, who was Byron's publisher. So Vaux's status as a repeat offender took him to the most severe penal settlement of Newcastle, but it also meant that his experience um, and career and the text were marked by a kind of ongoing interpenetration between the imperial metropolis and the colony. And it's one that builds um, the name of Vaux into a recognisable literary icon. One of one mark of this iconic um, or sort of um, subcultural iconic status is the fact that Vaux is referred to in the invocation to the first collected edition of Pierce Egan's Life in London of 1821. And the invocation is to John Murray. But thou, O Murray, whose classic front defies with terrific awe Open thy doors and take the unsophisticated Jerry Hawthorne by the hand. It's essentially a kind of Tom and Jerry story. So Jerry's the, the key protagonist um, of life in London. And although not a child harrowed by birth, a corsair bold or a hardy foe, wretched exile, yet let me solicit thee to introduce him to thy numerous acquaintance. So here, Vaux's convict memoir the memoir of the career criminal is invoked as a source of cultural and literary authority on a par with the poetry of Byron. And in this sense, the invocation to Murray reverses the direction of the supposed flow of the lag, um, an influence not from metropolis to colony, but the other way round. Life in London by the son of Irish migrants is usually identified as the, the sensation and the key text that popularised the flash language, publicising the dynamic social and li li linguistic life of a lower criminal class to the upper classes. But as this performative invocation demonstrates, Egan's text, like, Bo like Byron's flash canto, was a latecomer to, to Vaux. So Vaux's story of transportation is not a story of no return, but one of departures for and returns from the colony, um, marked by this ongoing contact and cultural interpenetration. So Egan figures publishing as a form of social patronage, invoking the doors of Murray's Albemarle Street publishing house to effect a kind of social introduction of the unsophisticated Jerry by the powerful Murray, who is the epicentre of worldly London contacts, if not actually a gentleman himself. Um, but having said that, for all the largesse of Egan's figure of John Murray taking literary newcomers by the hand through his um, awful doors... The story of Murray's patronage of Vaux, um, and Byron too for that matter, was not uncomplicated. Um, it was not a tireless flow of bonhomie. And the similarities between Vaux and Byron are fascinating here. Vaux's memoirs were published by Murray on the 12th of January, 1819, six months before the first two cantos of Byron's Don Juan on the 15th of July. And the flash canto is, is um, produced in, in 1822 and, and, and 1823. Both texts were later published by the radical John Hunt. Murray added his name to the first edition of Vaux's memoir, but quickly dropped the connection. Um, and there's a similar awkwardness with the first two cantos of Don Juan, published by Murray, but without Murray's name. Um, much to the glee of pirates who were given carte blanche through the absence of Murray's name on the title page. But that's an another story. Um, I want to turn now to another kind of wild man, um, not a convict but a respectable colonial functionary, um, and through him return to that Dorsai lithograph. 
and its appearance in the colonial archives. The early Australian colonial passage of the Dorsai Byron dandy silhouette is registered by William Romain Govish, um, a surveyor in New South Wales, and a sketchbook album belonging to Gov Govett held at the National Library of Australia in the Rex Nan Cavell collection includes a pen and ink copy of the sketch of Dorsey by Maclees from Fraser's magazine, together with other copies um, of the illustrations of Regency literary identities from Fraser's magazine. Um, and the, the sketchbook has been digitised, and, and so we can, we can, it's possible to go through it on, online. Um, interestingly, though, the NLA has catalogued the item as though it's a printed image, but it appears to be original, one of a series of original pen and ink copies of the lithograph etchings from Fraser's, um, all of which are initialed um, WRG on the, the bottom right-hand side. And this is the copy, this is the garbage ink and pencil um, copy of that Maclise lithograph. So these illustrations are then are copies of a range of Regency literary identities. Uh, there's Dorsey, the Countess of Blessington herself, Thomas Edgerton, the publisher um, who, who published Sense and Sensibility, um, featured here with this kind of wonderfully embellished um, dandyish dressing gown. Um, so these seem to be original hand-drawn copies of the Maclees illustrations, um, but also suggest kind of tracing in places with the kind of intermediation of, of, of print and pen. There are also some sketches of Australian flora and fauna, kangaroos, um, and the head of an eagle shot by me. So the sketchbook, um, a really fascinating um, item, is, is a really kind of fascinating demonstration of, of the interpenetration of um, not only kind of print and manuscript culture and indeed um, print visual culture, um, and manuscript culture at this time, and of the Regency metropolis with the colonial peripheries, where the literary lions of Regency London share the stage with the stars of the Australian animal kingdom. Govett was an assistant surveyor to the New South Wales surveyor Sir Thomas Mitchell, after whom the major Mitchell cockatoo was named. I know I have a kind of theme <laughs> going here. Um, and this is what Mitchell said about the, the cockatoo. Few birds more enliven the monotonous hues of the Australian forest than this beautiful species whose pink-coloured wings and flowing crest might have embellished the air of a more voluptuous region. Um, so the going back to, to Peter's paper yesterday and, and, and the you know, kind of the emptiness. I mean, it's the, I think the Australian narrative is the sort of emptiness, but with these crazy bursts of colour and loud noise with sort of loud, colourful birds and animals and, you know, birds really high on all of the, the sugary kind of drinks from the, from the, the landscape. Um, Govett's Leap, a waterfall with a 1,000-metre drop in the Blue Mountains near Blackheath, was named after Govett by Mitchell, who referred to Govett in a report of 1832, very intriguingly, as a wild young man who needed control. Indeed, Govett was such a wild young man, it seems, that popular legend confused him with a local bushranger. And as late as 1871 in the Sydney Mail, he was described as a felon, convict and a lag who had taken his own life by throwing himself down a gorge. In fact, government was made redundant in 1834 and returned to England, dying in 1848, apparently of natural causes, according to a vindicatory letter by his nephew, um, although the ADB entry refers to some kind of crisis after his return. This legend about the wild young man has a particular resonance when read against an entry by Govett himself 
in a different notebook and sketchbook which details the discovery of the cataract that was named after him. It was an amusement with me always when I approached the edge of these precipices to loosen large masses of rock and by the assistance of the men lying on their backs and pushing with their feet to upset them into the abyss below and one could form a tolerable judgment of the frightful depth they had to fall before they came in contact with anything from observing the time of silence from the instant of their dislodgement until they struck and re-echoing thundered from rock to rock and valley to valley, resounding again and against the more distant walls of the gully. This entry seems to me to offer a leading example of what Paul Carter refers to in The Road to Botany Bay as spatial history, the prehistory of cultural space, quote, the literature of spatial history, the letters home, the explorer's journals, are written traces which, but for their spatial occasion, would not have come into being. They are not like novels. They are analogous to unfinished maps and should be read accordingly as records of travelling. This spatial occasion is also the occasion of mapping and management, though, um, and Mitchell, in that report, um, where he talks about him as the wild young man, also refers to Govett as being remarkably clever at dealing with unexplored country. Records of travelling, records of pleasure, as well as dealing with unexplored country. What is being mapped here in Govett's account as a form of amusement is a particular experience of space configured by temporal effects of lag, delay and deferral, this is an acutely pre-cultural sense of lag, where lag is experienced as a form of almost vertiginous sublimity, with its focus on observing the time of silence from the instant of their dislodgement until they're struck, and the focus on re-echoing, thundering from rock to rock, resounding again and against the more distant walls. So this fascinating kind of... Um, intense observation and immersive experience of um, distance. As well as observation and judgment, there is experiment and play and amusement and the kind of vicarious thrill of experiencing the frightful depth at a distance, hearing the rock striking in the distance. Um, lag as exhilaration. So this entry then also suggests some of that kind of wildness that, um, is, that, that Mitchell talks about in the report on, on Govett. When Govett returned to England in 1834, he wrote 20 articles on Australia for the Saturday magazine, including... Um, comparatively sympathetic accounts of Indigenous Australians that critiqued white brutality um, and a, a detailed, fascinating account of a corroboree that is acutely attuned to details of masculine dress, gesture and dress and, and ritual. So Govett's, I want to suggest, is one kind of colonial career and social identity the wild young man who literally copies but also displaces the late Regency dandy type of Dorsai. The military man is another form of dandy and modern social identity that develops the, the Dorsai silhouette. And in this context, we might consider Govett's superior, the highly decorated Major Mitchell, who the, 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 the cockatoo was named after, who was a general in the Peninsula Wars under the Duke of Wellington and who was busy after 1834 when Govett left and, and went back to Britain, naming Victorian sites after battle sites in Spain, such as Mount Arapiles in Western Victoria, after the site of the Battle of Salamanca in 1812. Mitchell also had a more direct and problematic relationship with Indigenous Australians, um, as recorded in this controversial portrait of 
Mitchell by William Ferniehough in Album of Portraits, mainly of New South Wales officials of 1836. The portrait echoes a famous silhouette of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, the victor of, of the Battle of Waterloo. Um, and you'll notice here that, that Mitchell is holding a portrait of an Indigenous subject there. Um, this is the Wiridjuri man, John Piper, who was Mitchell's guide on his third expedition into the interior of New South Wales. And this is the original portrait of Piper um, that is being reproduced and, and cited and quoted in that image of Mitchell. In his essay in the volume that accompanies the uh, really wonderful current exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria Colony, David, the art historian David Hansen writes that, quote, in contrast to the ragged attire of the other subjects of Fernie House's series of 12 profile portraits of Aborigines of New South Wales, Piper is shown posing proudly with the accoutrement of settler regard that had been given to him by Mitchell, musket, military jacket and Governor Darling's cocked hat. But the plot thickens and Hansen cites Elizabeth Findlay's argument that the Mitchell portrait also has a specific political import. In December 1836, the explorer was subject to an executive council investigation into the killing of seven Aboriginal people at Dispersion Mountain. His defence centred on his having been warned by Piper, the guide, of an impending attack by a group of Aboriginals. The print may be intended not or not merely as a tribute to Piper's assistance, but as a reminder to viewers familiar with the controversy of Piper's responsibility and of Mitchell's innocence. So this is, this is um, Findlay's argument that, that Hansen um, cites. So the image here um, mediates a lot of contemporary controversy around frontier violence. Regardless of intention, um, the image is quite striking, I think, um, for these reasons, for being an example of the supposedly um, decorative and mass-produced form of the silhouette taking on the symbolic, allegorical and didactic functions um, of you know, more elevated forms of, of portraiture within the the aesthetic gener generic hierarchy. Um, and it's, it, it's complex and, and, and very ambivalent. On the one hand, it subtly dramatises a vaunted homosocial form of martial friendship um, in staging a kind of intimate reciprocity between Mitchell and Piper. Nevertheless, that very intimacy inscribes the tensions and strains that marked the relationship during and after the investigation um, and which included an ultimate betrayal of Piper by Mitchell. But it is no less exploitative for being intimate nor less significant in its capacity to function for Piper, the Rudgery man, as a vehicle of self-assertion for, as Grace Carskin argues, in early colonial Australia at a time of changing warrior culture, some Aboriginal men like Piper embraced European military clothing to signify their gender identification with white men and their superior social status. For the sitters of such portraits, the jackets they wore mimicked the symbolic role of the jacket of their European counterparts and were important emblems of masculine power. That's Carskins. And Piper was rewarded by Mitchell, as were many guides to explorers, by a breastplate. Piper, very pointedly, wanted to be known not as the proverbial king, but as conqueror of the inland. From that perspective, it seems no accident that the, the conqueror is here kind of miniaturised and, and surveyed. I mean, there's a sense in which... Yeah, on the one hand, it's this sort of gesture of intimate, fond recognition, but also a kind of surveying. 
So in this sense, these two portraits both commemorate and extend the convergence of colonial settler culture with state-sanctioned frontier violence. Like so many forms of settler commemoration, it takes the form of repression and the repression of violence through rituals of decoration, patronage and intimate recognition as a form of social control. These portraits amply demonstrating the potent social and historical agency of clothing also give added resonance to Linda Colley's reading of Napoleonic Redcoats, quote, never before or since have military, British military uniforms been so impractically gorgeous, so brilliant in colour, so richly ornamented or so closely and cunningly tailored, and the more exclusive a regiment an officer belonged to and the higher his rank, the more dazzling his uniform was likely to be. In every sense, he was dressed to kill. Such state-sanctioned colonial violence is the other face of a settler culture against which convict criminals like Vaux seem quaint, archaic malefactors. On another level is the genteel criminal Thomas Griffiths Wainwright, the English artist, suspected poisoner and convicted forger who in 1837 was transported to Van Diemen's Land where he became a noted society portrait painter, wearing his jacket turned up um, in a slightly Byronic fashion, as Annette Peach writes in the ODNB entry on Wainwright, Wainwright models the figure of convict converging with Dandy, and he's a very unnerving but quite compelling figure. In her fascinating study of colonial Australian portrait drawings, Joanna Gilmore refers to Wainwright as the best-trained, best-connected and most accomplished of the artists who came to Australia as convicts. Wainwright associated in Van Diemen's Land with settler colonials, as Gilmore notes, middling public servants or those of less elevated social origins, more anxious to present themselves as gentrified. Through his portraits, Wainwright both documented and collaborated in this process of colonial making and remaking. One of those colonists who commissioned a portrait from Wainwright was the brother of Lady Blessington, Major Robert Power, who came to Van Diemen's Land in 1840 as Surveyor General and who commissioned a portrait of his daughter Margaret Power. By February 1847, this portrait had found its way to London and into the Blessington Circle when Lady Blessington showed it to her guests at Gore House, which was her last London home before she left London for good, when, after the Irish potato disease ate up her remaining jointure, she was forced to flee London to escape the creditors and left with Dorsai, whose wife, Lady Blessington's stepdaughter, had by now long left him. So the Countess of Blessington and Dorsai fled London um, and went into exile in France where they lived until their deaths. Wainwright's portrait in Blessington's home, um, now sadly lost, embodies the interpenetration of the liminal yet transformative modes of Regency cultures of scandalous celebrity exile colonial settlerdom and convictism, like the shadow art of the silhouette medium, proleptic of the new mediums of photography, cinema and screen projection, but shadowily nostalgic and retrospective. This shady figure, gentleman of the shade, Wainwright, models simultaneously a real-time Regency dandyism that conjures its own belated forms a transformed dandy kind that transports shadowy pasts and routurier arriviste careers of scandalous success into a new arena of global modernity that hosts a complex traffic between metropolis and colony, respectability and unrespectability, fame and notoriety, settler colonialism and convictism. As in Egan's parodic genealogy of the, of the FOP, the story of new Regency masculine social identities, respectable men, swells, flash men, wild colonial men, gentlemen of the shade, 
convicts broken or remade anew is not a simple story of supersession. It is one of intermediation and interpenetration. In this sense, rather than being the Regency's distant other, at the far remove of an irreversible lag, Botany Bay, Newcastle and Van Diemen's Land can be seen as realisations of the Regency as a model of global modernity. If the transported flash language, like the lag fever it indexes, figures the belatedness of the colonial world, it does so with a twist. It registers this fever as an energy and dynamism of the colonial peripheries, as a charged capacity for transforming and outrunning the imperial metropolitan centre and indeed providing the lenses or barnacles through which to see it more clearly. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Settler Social Identities. The conference was generously supported by the Humanities Institute and UCD College of Arts and Humanities.